I don't know if you looked at the prophets, whether they would have been the kind of people who would have drawn a crowd, or whether people would have been interested in saying, oh, you're Micah. And I think when I read the prophets, I think that their call to be the voice of God to the people was often a very difficult and probably often a very lonely assignment. Um, it may be not always the case, but I, I certainly get this sense that they were, life was going on around them as life does, and they are speaking into it in a way that says, you know what, it's not good. Um, I've enjoyed the last few weeks when Chris Weintz and Steve Workington have been speaking and they've provided some historical context and um, I am by no means an Old Testament scholar. In fact, I, my knowledge of the Old Testament is not what it should be, I'll just say that. And I, I would love to actually sit in a class taught by somebody who thoroughly understood the Old Testament and its timeline and how things fit together. I thought Chris and Steve have done a good job. But the life of the people of God seemed so often to be one of both marked by stability and then great instability. That when you read it, it seems like these are a people who, who struggle with maintaining what God has asked them to do and how God has asked them to live. And part and parcel of that is you continually hear, and if you read Kings or books like Chronicles, the, the first thing that they write about these kings was, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Or you read, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And I think so often the people of God, their own experience was so often determined by the godly leadership or the lack of it by people who should have been pointing them to God. Um, I think it's important for us to, to read the prophets. I, I don't want to pretend that I spend much time reading them because um, that would not be true. But in Ephesians 2 verse 20, we are reminded that our faith, the Christian faith, is based on the teachings of the prophets, the apostles, the cornerstone is Jesus, but the prophets and the apostles are like part of the foundation of what our faith is. And the Bible says we are living stones that sort of are being built up on that foundation, that that's who we are, we're continuing to add to us, and we are becoming increasingly a temple, a holy nation unto God. So I think it's good for us to listen to what the prophets had to say. And this morning, uh, what I really want to do is try to focus on what Micah tells us about the heart and the character of God. And the flip side of that, maybe what Micah has to say about human nature or the heart and perhaps the character of man. 
And I've, so, I've entitled this message, So What Does God Expect From Me? What does God expect from you? What does God expect from his people? And in this age, we would say, what does God expect from his church? And so I, I want to, there's two verses that I will spend a fair amount of time on, and the rest, I think, will be more of a general um, talking about Micah's message. But the first verse, it says, the word of the Lord, which came to Micah. So it says, the word of the Lord, which came to Micah. So this is something God specifically spoke to him. Of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw. And I kind of missed that at first. And it says, so these are words that God has put into Micah's heart and mind. But Micah has also seen things. Now, whether it's through a vision or whether it's through a dream. And I think many of the warnings that Micah gave to the people of God had to do with what he saw. And he would have seen calamity. He would have seen destruction. Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. I just want to talk a little bit about these three men. Jotham became king at the age of 25. That's pretty young. Ahaz became king at the age of 20. And Hezekiah became king at the age of 25. Secondly, Ahaz was Jotham's son. Hezekiah was the son of Ahaz. So these, this is just like a genealogy. Father passing the kingship, the reign, to a son. Jotham is one of those, if you read in Kings, where it says he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And it's very interesting, Ahaz did evil in the sight of the Lord. And I think much of what Micah has to say to the people of God has to do with Ahaz's reign. But I'm thinking, too, this is a 20-year-old man surrounded by an Assyrian empire which he would have feared. And so I find myself at times thinking, you know, what was wrong with you people? And then part of me says, well, Doug, what was wrong with them is the same thing that's often wrong with me. Anyway, Ahaz did evil in the sight of the Lord. Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, actually did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So it's interesting. All three of those men are listed in Matthew's genealogy that leads to the birth of Jesus. You will find those three names mentioned. But when Micah spoke, 
the words of the Lord, and he spoke about what he saw. What he saw was not good. He saw in the land what we would call rampant corruption and idolatry. And I'm going to focus mostly in the next little while here on Ahaz, this, this king who did evil in the sight of the Lord. That Ahaz had actually removed the silver and gold from the temple of God and given them as a gift to the king of Assyria. And he did it as sort of a political, as a strategic move to garner some protection which he got. Ahaz also took note of the Assyrian altars, whatever they would have looked like. That he took note of them and he made a pattern or a model of that altar showing its workmanship, exactly how it was done. And he sent it to a fellow named Uriah, or Uriah, who then built it. One of the amazing things about that is Uriah was a priest. He was to be a priest of the Most High God, and now he's constructing an altar for the gods of the kingdoms around him. And Ahaz presented his own offerings, his own sacrifices, those things that God would have asked them to do and to remember. Ahaz did those things, but he presented them on the altar of other gods. And he decreed that the people do the same. And there's part of that that just strikes me as being so, how can you do that? How can you celebrate those special days, those special offerings that are meant to be given to the one true God? And you simply say, well, God, I'll keep doing that, but I'm going to do it on the altar of other gods. The altar of God was actually relocated. The outer entry into that temple was actually removed, and some of its contents were vandalized. And if you read... Um, Second Chronicles, verse, you know, chapters 24 to 27. If you read Second Kings, chapter 16, it talks about the things that were going on. But it's interesting that Ahaz said that he would use the altar of God when he needed something. And I thought, wow, this young man is offering offerings to, on the altars of other gods, but he says, you know what, when I need counsel or guidance, I'm going to use the altar of God. And it's almost like he's saying, I know that the God of Israel speaks. I know that the God of Israel listens. And so chapter 1 of Micah, if you read it, it paints a graphic de description of judgment to come. Micah 1 verse 9 says, For her wound, this is the nation, her wound is incurable. For it has come to Judah, it has even reached the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. 
And as I was thinking about that, there's this verse or a few verses in Proverbs that came to me. Proverbs 19, verse 28, it says, When people do not accept divine guidance, they run wild. Now that's a New Living Translation. Some translation says, Where there is no vision, where there is no sense of revelation, where there is no sense of spiritual direction, people are unrestrained. And Micah is a vivid description of what it looks like when a nation who is called to be the people of God has lost its way. And those in positions of leadership, those who the people would have looked to to represent them, to protect them, to judge over them, to shepherd them in a way, had lost what we would call the moral authority to lead. And who would those people be? Well, they would be kings and rulers, princes, whatever they were called. They would have been the judges, those that oversaw the courts of law. Micah says they're also the priests, and they are even the prophets. Prophets speaking into Micah, into Israel, into Judah, he said, have lost your way. And those who suffer the most in this nation, which is called to be the nation of God, are the powerless, the poor, the vulnerable, the weak, widows, orphans. And it's into this reality that Micah speaks as a prophetic voice, and he speaks words of knowledge, words, I believe, that the people would have understood. In other words, I think the people would have said, ooh, yeah, I think you're right. He also spoke of what is to come, and that would be judgment. So he's talking now about things in the future that are going to happen to the people of God, and he had opposition to that. There were people who said, "Ah, eh, you know what? This is not going to happen. And Micah also spoke to the coming of Jesus. And I'm not going to speak too much about that, but I think we need to know that Micah's prophecy is about word for the day. It's a word for what is about to come, even with maybe within the lifetime of those he was talking to, but he is also speaking about a day which is to come, when a good shepherd will reign and rule over his people. This verse, Micah 5 verse 2, it says this, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Talking about Jesus. He will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord his God. At that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. And this one will be our peace. Prince of peace, Lord of lords. He will be the good shepherd that is lacking in this nation. 
But this morning, I, I do want to focus mostly on Micah's prophetic words to his own people. And when I say Micah, I should really be saying God's words. Because these are words given to Micah from God. So it's God's address to the nation, if you want to put it that way. But Micah was not the only prophetic voice in the land. That there was definitely competition in the field of being a prophet. There were self-appointed prophets who also had the ear of the people, and people actually liked to listen to them. They told people what they wanted to hear and had somehow turned prophecy into a lucrative endeavor. You might literally call it prophecy for profit. Um, inside uh, your bulletin, if you took one, there's a little half sheet of paper that I, I put in there that talks about God's case against his people. I called it indictments. And the Bible calls it God's indictments. This is what God has against you. And so there's just some examples that are in that insert. So uh, you might want to look at that. But it speaks to directly to this turning everything into an opportunity for profit. At one point, Micah says, as in his writing, suppose a prophet full of lies would say to you, I'll preach to you the joys of wine and alcohol. That's just the kind of prophet you would like. Micah 2.11. And it made me think also of Paul, where he's talking in the New Testament. He says, don't be like children, being tossed and blown around by every new teaching, don't be influenced when people try to trick you with lies so clever they sound like the truth. And the self-appointed prophets of Micah's day, so you might say in this world of the prophetic, the self-appointed prophets said to him, Micah, you know what, you need to stop talking. Stop saying the things you're saying. They say, do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. And I think it's partly why being a prophet is often such a lonely endeavor. Micah is not self-appointed. Micah is God's appointed, God's anointed voice to the people. And he had an unenviable job of holding a nation's, I'll say, feet to the fire. That in many ways, Micah was a spiritual whistleblower. I think that's a great way to think about his words, as a spiritual whistleblower. And the whistleblowers will always face opposition. Because they expose what is hidden... They speak to things that go unspoken. And Micah highlights the idolatry of the nation and the depth of its social injustices. That those with the most to lose when someone starts to blow the whistle are always the people in power. 
Those who simply benefit from leaving things the way they are because they have found that it is quite self-serving. And God, through Micah, his message, I would say, highlights the two most important commandments God gave. Do not give allegiance to any other God. Don't bow down to anything made with human hands. But rather, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. The second commandment, which is similar to this, he says, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And neither of those things were happening in God's people. Micah's great message is that our love for God is expressed in a willingness to humbly bow before him alone and acknowledge him as God. Which we have done this morning, which we are doing this morning as we sit here. We are acknowledging God as God. Micah's great message is also that our love for God is expressed in how we treat those around us. That that is not separate from what it means to humbly walk with God. So how do we treat the most vulnerable, the poor? Those who are easily neglected or powerless and easily exploited. And that's what Micah is talking about. You're not bowing down to God. And you are not treating your fellow citizens with any kind of justice. And so Micah is full of God's indictments against his own people. And God says, Micah says, God has a case. It's kind of a court of law language. God has a case against you. He says, as a people of God, you above all people should have a sense of justice. Yet you hate good and you love evil. You have appointed your own prophets and those who should be directing your hearts to God actually abhor justice and twist everything that is straight. I don't know if you've ever, and I don't want to make this jump from this to exactly what's happening today, but to me, the sense of twisting that which is straight, I think we're living in that place where it's like, okay, what is, someone tell me the truth. You pronounce judgment for a bribe. Your priests instruct for a price. And your prophets make predictions or they divine for a fee. They will pronounce words of blessing and favor on you if you can pay. If you have nothing to give them, their words towards you are going to be hostile. I think it's entirely correct to say that those who were called to shepherd the people of God had become its predators. That they saw in peoples, these are their own people, they saw in people poverty and weakness and opportunity to exploit them, to expropriate their land, to evict women from their homes, 
And Micah speaks to the depth to which these injustices tear at the very heart of God. That God, Jesus, especially when you read the Sermon on the Mount, has a heart exactly for those people. And Micah warns the self-appointed prophets. He says to them, a time is coming when your leaders will actually call on God, but God will not hear you. In fact, he will hide his face from you. And it's really like Micah saying to those people, God will not be mocked. And I think it's a, a, a valuable reminder for me, for us, that the God of the Old Testament is also the God of the New Testament. That the God of the, of the New Testament is not somehow a softer, more lenient version of the Old Testament. He is the same God, unchanging. So we need to heed, I will call it the spirit, and the message that Micah has for the people of his day. God has not gone soft on injustice. And as his church today, as his holy people, we are to be a visible expression of Micah's prophetic words. There's a verse, and this is the second one that, that I'm going to emphasize, and, and to me it's such an incredibly beautiful verse. Micah says to the people, God has actually told you what he wants from you. It's not hidden. It's not a mystery. It's not difficult to figure out. And I think sometimes, even with the context of the Christian faith, people would say, well, there's so many doctrines, I don't understand them all, I don't know what they all mean. Here's the message of God through Micah to the people of God. God has shown you what is good. God has shown you what he requires of you. And here it is. Do justly love mercy and walk humbly with your God uh, I just think that verse when I read that I think okay God that is such a reminder of how you want us to live our lives and we can all understand that If God was to ask, how will I know that you are truly my people? I will see you doing, acting, living justly. I will know it by your willingness to extend mercy. And even as in Micah's day, I believe that is who we are called to be. That is actually God's vision for his people, his family, his church. It's interesting, justice and mercy, and I think that's a, a, a theme throughout the prophets and maybe throughout the Old Testament, this sense of the justice of God and at the same time, the sense of the mercy of God. 
And in a way, they sound like opposing forces or competing motivations. Courts of law in most countries, I think, struggle with how to balance those two. How to exercise justice and at the same time somehow show some sense of mercy or grace or I would call it maybe hope for restoration. An eye for an eye can sound just, but it can very easily lead to cruelty if there's no mercy attached to it. And I think we can think of countries in which that kind of eye for an eye or that kind of, oh, this is the law, this is what we do, are probably countries that you and I are thankful we don't live in. But mercy, without a sense of justice, can lead to a mockery of justice. You might even say it can lead to lawlessness. And so I think as humans, as civilizations, as countries, that we always have the struggle of justice and mercy and how to get it right. When Micah uses the phrase, do justly, while it, I think it certainly applies to the courts of law, it also applies to how you conduct business. There's conversation in Micah about your, the weights that you're using and the scales that you're using when you're running your business, they're not, they're not true. They're not giving correct measurements. You're, you're actually ripping the people off. So doing justly, yes, it's about courts of law, but doing justly is about how you do business. And I would say in a broader context, when God says do justly, it's about how you live your life. In the New Testament, Paul uses language like to live exemplary lives. To live lives that are beyond reproach. To live lives that evidence the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God and the fruit of the Spirit. But living justly is more than simply being honest or simply, more than simply treating people fairly. I think living justly in the eyes of God, and again it makes me think about the Sermon on the Mount, teachings of Jesus, it means going the extra mile for those who are poor, those who are weak, those who are easily exploited. Go the extra mile for widows for orphans, for aliens in the land. That we need to be people who advocate and serve those kind of people. That when we live with that spirit, we are truly walking justly. God calls us also to love mercy, not to occasionally show mercy. And I think there's such a, a, 
similar meaning to the word showing mercy and the willingness to be to extend forgiveness. As God says, I think so that where pure justice might validate some form of penalty, some form of retribution, some form of revenge, or maybe even resentment, Micah says that I believe Jesus says, consider extending mercy. Consider extending instead the hand of forgiveness. It's the story of God's heart for his people in the days of Micah, and I believe it's the story of God's heart for us today. So we have this sort of, I would say, interesting, complicated, delicate dance between justice and mercy. One that is not easy to navigate. And if you ask me whether the Old Testament is mostly about judgment or mostly about mercy, I would say it is mostly about both. But it is an ongoing, often tragic story. You read the prophets, it's so much of it is not easy reading, and yet you always hear about the hope, the love, the willingness of God to to restore those, sometimes they're called the remnant. It's like the leftovers who still say, God, we acknowledge you as God. That God will not forsake those who call out to him in spirit, in truth, and in humility. God will not forsake those who do justly, love mercy, and humbly walk with him. Earlier on, I, I referenced that prophetic verse that predicted the birth of Jesus. And I want to kind of end with that. Talking about justice and mercy, I think David said it so well when he said, if God kept track or kept an account of our wrongdoings, David said, well, who would stand? And, and David says, you know, he says, I wouldn't. And I would say, I would not stand. But God, while he is also a just God, is a merciful God. And there is no more beautiful expression of justice and mercy than the cross of Jesus. Those things that we struggle with in determining justice and mercy were perfectly fulfilled. The cross of Jesus. It was justice fully served. And it is mercy fully and freely offered. Sometimes saying it is love so amazing Love so divine that God has done for us what we cannot do on our own. We invite the worship team to come back up. Micah's prophetic words um, are sometimes, I will say, difficult reading. But I think hidden behind the harsh words, 
hidden behind all the indictments that God has against his people, there is also a beautiful picture, a painting of God's vision for his church, for his kingdom, for his people. That God wants and desires for us as his people, a nation, you might say a church, who live in unity, who live in peace. His vision is for a people who live justly, uprightly, who live in an honorable way. His vision is for a people who show and extend mercy, who care for the vulnerable, and people who are willing to simply walk humbly with their God for leading us. It's a great song. Uh, it talks exactly about what Micah says. We need to joyfully adore the one true God. It also said in there, teach us how to love each other. And that's what Micah's talking about. Um, Chris mentioned that when he opened the service about getting up in the morning and keeping your eyes on Jesus. And, uh, you know, for me, when I think about that, well, what does that then mean through the day? I think Micah helps us think about that. Uh, if Mike Traz and the lead team issued a decree that every person in Creekside had to have a T-shirt that had a biblical reference on it, I don't really like to be a human billboard, but I think I might choose those nine words as a reminder to myself every day, do justly. Love mercy and walk humbly with your God. I pray that for you this day and that you would know his joy and that his joy would actually fill you up this coming week. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just give you thanks that you are present in your church, that you are here with us. Father, I thank you that you speak sometimes in words so clearly. I pray, God, that the Spirit of God would motivate us to live accordingly. So we give you praise and honor and thanksgiving in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.